0: We have a little bit of a longer uh, reading and I know the kids are getting dropped off, um, but gosh, I I can't believe uh, we're kind of at the end of this sermon series on the book of Revelation. Um, So we have a little bit of a longer reading because this is actually a description of heaven itself uh, that the Apostle John and Jesus uh, has given to us. To give us a little bit of a foretaste of what is to come.
1: A reading from the book of Revelation. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel like a jasper clear as crystal it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass." They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the word of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who who desires take the water of life without price. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that uh, this morning you give us just a glimpse and a foretaste of all that it is to come. And as we draw near to you this morning, we pray you would draw near to us and fill our hearts with hope, and we ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Uh, so today we come to the end of this series on the book of Revelation. We started this back in April. Um, So a little sad this is kind of coming to an end because I've really enjoyed it personally. It's been so enriching for my own spiritual life. But I hope for you after today, if you ever pick up this book and you ever find yourself getting a little confused, I want you to remember this little quote from Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and author from his book, Reverse Thunder. And he said, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. There is nothing new to say on the truth of the gospel, but there is a new way to say it. We read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive our imagination to revive our imagination. And that's what we've been doing for four months. You know, and um, we've stressed over this time the opening five words of the book to tell you how to read the book because it begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title and that's the theme. And one last time, revelation is from the Greek word apocalypse, which means unveiling pulling back the veil so you can see what's there. And in Revelation, this curtain is pulled way back, right? So you can finally see things that we often miss, not only in light of what will be someday, but in light of what is now, today. I mean, this was so crucial to the original audience, Christians living in first century Asia Minor, who were facing the persecution uh, that was coming upon them for their faith. Their lives were at risk. Some have actually lost their lives. They lost loved ones. They had businesses, jobs taken away. They were othered and ostracized from the community. There was intense pressure to renounce Jesus. And maybe that's something you experienced yourself where you may have muttered under your breath, what good is it to follow Jesus? And we say these things when things are hard and you feel like your faith isn't sustaining you. But what revelation does, it helps us to see something. That Jesus is victorious. He wins. And he is calling his people to remain steadfast in faith because despite appearances, Jesus is winning and he has conquered sin and death and he will be victorious and history is unfurled before us in these visions and being united to jesus means being actually on the right side of history it is contrary to how things sometimes appear to be and we've seen this over and over again in the book this image of a throne. I want us to think about this for a second because that's really from Revelation 5, but it's actually one of the most common images in the book. It's repeated almost 50 times. It's one of the throne. And it gets repeated over and over again because what does the throne represent? It means that God reigns, that Jesus is victorious, that he is in control of the world and, our, and of our life and of all things and who is on the throne it's a lamb standing as though it has been slain and it begins to show us this is the way god conquers this is the way god overcomes this is the way his people are going to overcome the way of the lamb the suffering love and the final line of the book points us to the way of grace the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Oh, Amen. That's how the book ends. And what the Apostle John's been doing is he's been teaching us to fix our eyes on something very specific. To fix our eyes on something that is unseen. You know, that's a line from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, where Paul says, Fix your eyes on what is unseen. And if you think about that for a second, That's a really odd thing to say because how do you fix your eyes on something you can't see? So John gives us at the end of this book a vision of heaven to fix our eyes on where all of human history is headed and he gives us these images to latch onto so we can continue on even when things are hard. Now last week David talked about how our vision of this future impacts how we live today, he talked a lot about what won't be in heaven, right? No more tears or grief or pain. And also reflected on the fact that we will see God face to face, the thing that we've all longed for. And that is home for us. But today, I want us to look a little bit more at what heaven is going to be like, because that's what this passage really starts to flesh out. And... Here, I want us to look at it under three images. I can't talk about everything. There's so much here. So let me just boil it down into three things I want us to look at. I want us to consider the river, the jewels, okay, and the tree. The river, the jewels, and the tree. Because let's look at first the river. Because Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2 says what? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. The river of the water of life and the tree of life. Immediately, your mind should recognize these are echoes of what? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden before the fall of the world into sin. So it's showing us a picture of paradise actually restored. And there's a whole lot going on here that's easy to miss. Because one of the unifying images throughout all of the Bible is not only the throne, but this idea of the temple. But notice here in chapter 22, the river flows from something. Did you notice that? It's from the throne of God. That's the source And this is a reference to the book of Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel chapter 47, there is a prophecy that one day, a river flowing from the throne of God, a river flowing from the throne of God, from the temple of God, and you have to remember, the temple represents a dwelling place of God, and this river starts as a trickle, and it becomes a rush of water healing and renewing every single thing it touches. And it's an image meant to revive the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 with fresh, living water. And water is the key here. It's one of the most important symbols in the Bible. You know, it's meant to do what? Water brings cleansing. Anyone who takes a shower, you know what that feels like. There's something refreshing about being cleansed. Water is meant for drinking. It's a source of life. We all know how important how hydration is, right? Just go to the welcome table, look in the lost and found. How many water bottles are in there, okay? We all know hydration is important, okay? Um, but negatively also, it refers to something else. There's this thirst and a longing and a desire that water is meant to quench But the Bible talks about our great tragedy is that we don't know what will actually make us happy. So we constantly do what? Drink from sources that leave us unsatisfied. Our search for fulfillment becomes an unquenchable thirst. And this is the human condition because this is what sin does to us. And one of the most vivid images is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, where the Lord says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cistern, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I mean, it's just a sad image. What is God saying? We turn away from the one source that will satisfy us, and instead, what do we do? We try to meet our needs by doing what? Using the work of our hands. These cisterns that we dig, create, because in the desert, you need cisterns, things to hold water, because water is so valuable and precious. So people hew out containers of water, even from a rock. The problem with these cisterns is sometimes they leak. So you go to drink the water, it's not there. Sometimes things fall into it. Imagine an animal falling in there drowning. You get bugs and other stuff, and this fresh water can turn putrid. And the idea in Jeremiah 2 that God is saying is that we would rather drink water that will not make us feel fresh and renewed. We'd rather drink from these cisterns that we create. We'd rather follow programs of our own making that we would manufacture to find satisfaction apart from God. And that's what we would do rather than drinking from the water that God himself provides. Broken cistern is this idea of this perpetual frustration we feel. It's an image of self-sabotage that I think many of us are very familiar with. We self-sabotage by our attempts to secure our own happiness apart from God. And apart from who God says we are, that's the cistern. So if I can kind of stitch these things together, what Ezekiel is saying, what Jeremiah is saying, and what we have in Revelation, it's giving us an image. We're in heaven in the city of God. You don't have a cistern, but you have the river of the water of life coursing through the city of God, heaven itself. And what is that meant for? for us to take away from this. It's a picture of deep, perpetual satisfaction. It's this river flowing from the throne of God for all people who are worshiping him. And it's saying, you will be utterly satisfied in my presence. And you may have picked up on another uh, illusion because if you go back to John chapter 4... What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? There's a type of water that if you drink, it'll make you thirsty again. The kind you draw for yourself. But Jesus says in John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. What's John doing? He's saying, think about it. Think about all the images all throughout the scriptures and he's putting John 4 together with Revelation 22 with Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And you know what he's saying? We can actually begin to experience the reality of this heaven not only in the future, but actually now. In the present moment, not only when we get to heaven, we can sip this water. We can taste heaven. It tastes like contentment. In all circumstances. You can experience that even as you are suffering. Even as you've lost your home to a fire. Even as you've lost your health. That you can taste and see the Lord is good. And you can be content even when everything is not exactly as you had hoped. And Jesus is saying eternal life is not only for those who can find it when you die, but it can actually begin now. I mean, that's a remarkable, remarkable thing. We can taste this water now by fixing our eyes on what is unseen. You know, this got me thinking about the play Death of a Salesman. It's considered by many to be the greatest play of the 20th century. And as the title kind of lets you in on, it's a sobering, depressing play. And theatrical legend has it that when the curtain fell on the, on the premiere in 1949, there was absolutely no applause. The audience was stunned into silence, followed by crying and sobbing. I mean, the reason is because of the story. The title actually tells you what it's about. It's so depressing the way the story ends. But you have this guy, a guy named Willie Loman. He's married to his wife, Linda. He has two sons, Biff and Happy. They live in Brooklyn, and he's one of these guys. Willie's one of these guys. He's really good with his hands. He enjoys fixing things, fixing his house, working on his garden. But rather than following that, his imagination has been captured by something else. This thing called the American dream. The American dream is what? You go out and get more and more stuff because the more stuff you have, the more successful people will think you are. And the more stuff you have, the more your family will think you're successful. The more money and stuff you have, the more you will feel validated in the eyes of the world. And so instead of doing what he loves to do, what does he do? He becomes a traveling salesman to live the American dream. And by the time he's 60 years old, he's been demoted to a commission-only salesman. There's an indignity to that. Yet, it, he pretends to his family and his friends and the rest of the world, things are going amazing in that he's successful. And in the process, he loses everything. His marriage is falling apart, and most of all, he loses the admiration of his children his oldest son, Biff, in particular. And Willie's last-ditch effort to gain some respect is to take his own life. Because if he dies, he's thinking, then his family's going to get the life insurance money they will be provided for. And they will say, look at how great Dad was. You know, he really took care of us. But what he didn't factor in was that there's a clause in the insurance policy that says there is no payment in case of suicide. So when you read the epilogue, you see this very small gathering at Willie's funeral, just his immediate family, two neighbors, and everyone is standing around trying to say something nice about Willie. And then his son, his oldest son, Biff, says, The problem with dad was that he had all the wrong dreams. All, all wrong. You know, the book of Revelation is saying something very similar. It's asking us, are are we dreaming about all the wrong things? Are we putting our trust in broken cisterns that will not satisfy us? Are our lives fueled by dreams that will never quench our thirst or will we confess that we have all the wrong dreams and take a drink from the water of life because Jesus invites us to kneel down sip from the water of life experience God himself a drink from the river of delights that Psalm 36 8 talks about that's the river Okay? that's what we're looking forward to the jewels how about the jewels i mean the description of heaven my goodness you begin to think wait is god just into bling you know you got gold precious jewels all this stuff it's amazing even the gates are made out of a single pearl and by the way this is where you get the idea of the pearly gates of heaven right But if you read carefully, I'm going to get to the jewels in a second. In verse 16, notice the measurements of the city. Now, if you have a a Bible translation that's trying to translate it so you can get a better sense of what these ancient um, measurements are, you lose some of the impact of it because it says the city is in the shape of a cube. 12,000 stadia, length, width, and height. 12,000 cubed. That's hard for us to imagine. It's a massive, massive city. And over and over again, we said numbers in the book of Revelation are very important. Twelve is a very important number. And notice the thickness of the walls. It's what? 144,000. You know, all of these things represent something that is perfect. You know, there's another cube in the Bible. And if you're into architecture, you may know this because... In the instruction for the building of the temple, there's a place at the center of the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And only one person could enter it, the high priest, once a year during Yom Kippur to make atonement for the people of God. And this Holy of Holies is that because the Ark of the Covenant resided there. And the presence of God was there. And that was actually a perfect cube. And if you're following the architectural imagery, why is the city of God, the new Jerusalem, in the shape of a perfect cube? Because the whole city now conveys what at one time was just limited to the holy of holies and the presence of God. That's why in this city, there is no temple. Did you hear what John said in 21, 22? There is no temple I'm going to be out of a job. That's what I realized as I was reading this. You know why? Because the presence of God no longer needs to be mediated. It's available to everybody at all times. This is how the whole Bible is pointing to this one reality. 21.3 says, "I And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be their God. Revelation twenty one twenty three. and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is a lamp. You don't need sun. It's filled with light. The radiant presence of God. The foundation and the walls of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. 2119. What are all these jewels doing in the city of God? Another Old Testament image. Back in the Old Testament, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he wore a breastplate, and it had very 12 rare jewels. Very similar to the jewels described in the text, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the high priest would wear this and enter the Holy of Holies. And it was a way of saying that the priest was bearing the people on his heart before the presence of God. So in Revelation, now those jewels are adorned where? In the whole city. It's an image that's saying, in heaven, all of God's people will experience the beauty of God's glory. Think about it. You are a precious stone. A jewel. Beautiful. God sees you as radiant and beautiful. You are the bride. This is the city. These are how these images are all mixed together. And you are made beautiful because of what Jesus has done. Not because you've done everything right, but because God has done something. He has washed you in the blood of the Lamb. He has given you a robe. He's marked you with his name. That's the jewel. It's an amazing image. That's the river. That's the jewel. And lastly, the tree. 22, 1 and 2. John says there will be a tree of life in heaven. It's one of the most daring images in all of the book. Because it's a tree that has also 12 kinds of fruit, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Where do we see this tree of life? Gosh, again, it goes back to the beginning of the Bible, right? After Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God essentially put a security box around this tree of life, right? They were forbidden, barred from eating of that tree. And now, it's as if that tree is now released. It's available. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That those who are coming into heaven, they have wounds that have not been healed. And from this tree of life, you will receive healing. You know, I... I make it a thing, no more than one Lord of the Rings reference per year from this preacher, okay? Um, And I know everybody doesn't like fantasy, I get it, okay? But, you know, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, after the great victory, Frodo decides he has to leave the Shire. You remember this? He's been badly hurt in the war, and he's been stabbed by this blade. It's a poisonous thing, and there's a shard left in him. And it's one of those things that it's never quite fully healed. And Gandalf says the often quoted line, Alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured. And Frodo goes home, but he can't stay in the shire. He needs to leave. All the healing that's possible cannot be done even in the shire. And there's a reference to this idea that there is a place where that wound that you receive, and you know the wounds I'm talking about, the kind that fester in your heart, the kind that you've prayed through it, you've gotten halfway to healing, and yet a moment may come and you may weep over things that have been hard in your life. The way things have worked out in your family. The way things have not worked out in your family. Your professional career. The disappointments around relationships, family, friends, work. All of the wounds that we've experienced. And that you're hoping that one day there's got to be a time when there's healing for this. The tree promises someday. day even those wounds will be healed. I mean, it's not just for personal healing, but it's one for the healing of the nations. Again, an image and a reference back to Ezekiel 47, that God is going to do something. Listen, if your heart is utterly broken for all the things that haven't happened in your life or the things that have happened to you, And you've been crying out to God saying, God, why haven't you not healed this thing? The tree of life tells you, we don't know how it's all going to work out. I can't see how all this is going to be fixed. But God promises every wound will be healed. And that's just not a platitude. It's an assurance of the one who loves the way of grace. The one who says, I'm going to take care of you. And God is trying to help us to say, you know what? Don't let that consume you in such a way that you actually miss out on living life in this world as a follower of Jesus. That allows you to actually enjoy your present moment even while you're suffering. That the future hope you have actually allows you to enjoy the now. It's a remarkable thing. Well, some of you are thinking, well, why why would I get the river of life? Why would I be invited into this? You know why? It's only because of the cross of Jesus, because it is on the cross that Jesus says, I thirst, so that we could be satisfied. Why do we get the tree of life? And no one put it better than the 17th century poet George Herbert, who said, "All All ye who pass by, behold and see. Man sold the fruit, but I must climb the tree. This is Jesus speaking of himself in the poem. The tree of life to all, but only me. He's saying, man sold the fruit, but I must climb the tree. Jesus climbed the tree of the cross. It's the tree of life for everyone except for him. He bore grief and shame so that one day, One day, there is no longer grief or shame. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Where Jesus satisfies all of our longings. That's what he's done for us. You know, maybe you're thinking, I don't, you know, I don't know if heaven is for me. I mean, I, do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've done? And I I don't know if God could really accept or love someone like me. You know what's an amazing and encouraging thing that I picked up on this week is if you look at chapter 21, verse 12, notice the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed on it. Okay? And, And think about that for a second. Why would you put their names? It's not like they belong in the hall of fame of faith, right? You never read their stories thinking, Oh my goodness, they're amazing people. They love God so much. These people are not the people you commemorate, okay, on the gates of heaven. What's remarkable is not their personal piety or their faith. What's remarkable is God uses people like this for his kingdom purposes because their stories are full of fraud, deceit, dishonesty, envy, adultery, jealousy, these are the names on the gates of heaven? And you gotta ask why. Because it's a testament to the grace of God. To the way of grace. This is how heaven is constructed. It's not for those who've attained something. It's for those who've received forgiveness. Because heaven is not a place... For heroes, but it's a place of those who have been redeemed, who are failures, who give thanks to God. That, that, my friend, is good news. And this is why Jesus says, Come. You know, did you hear that at the end? He keeps saying, Come, come to the water, come, drink this water, and he's not going to charge you for it because it's by grace. And he invites you this morning to come and drink from the river of delight. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us this remarkable vision of what is to come. And we ask that this morning uh, you would fill our hearts with such hope and faith that in humility we would drink and sip and drink deeply from the waters that you offer the good news of what your son has done lord we need uh, this more than anything else we need to end all of our self-sabotaging and our self-salvation strategies and come to you and find that you welcome us and offer us so much make this new and fresh so that our hearts would be full today May this be for some of us the first time where we give ourselves to the good news of Jesus. More than anything else, we praise you. We honor you, O holy God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.